0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 9. Revelation 9, we're going to look this morning at verses 13 through 21. Next week, we'll take a brief break. We'll uh, look at Luke 1, and then on the 25th and 26th, we'll look at Luke 2. Uh, So we're going to take a little break, a couple-week break, as we uh, look at the birth narrative of Christ and his incarnation, Luke 1 and 2. Um, I want to thank all of those who are worshiping with us online, join us online, and also uh, Reach Church DeSoto, so grateful for them and the venue service right down the hall. You know, this next year we're excited, we've been uh, planning this for quite some time, uh, but we're putting together the ability uh, to, for me to preach live from Reach Church DeSoto and have it live streamed back here. How cool would that be? Um, to get to preach live there and then live stream it back here. And also to preach live in the venue service and live stream it back here. Uh, we've been wanting to do that for some time because I, I feel like I want to get out there and get to know these Reach Church DeSoto people a little better. But I, I want to be in both places. And how can we do that? So uh, we're uh, putting together uh, the opportunity to have a mobile van that will go with me and enable us to preach live anywhere. I want to preach live from Hawaii one time. Uh, so... We're working, me and Faith really have been praying hard about that and see if we could do that. Um, But uh, anyway, we're we're so excited about that and what God is doing in our church, the growth that God has given us in DeSoto and even this next year as we plan and hope to open a new location in downtown Paola. We're beginning construction down there to open up that campus and just, just so incredibly excited. If you've never been out to Fellowship Olathe, uh, that church is growing and growing and growing and Pastor Jeremy out there and I'm telling you just such an exciting time to be a part of what God's doing here at Lenexa Baptist Church. Also amazing that uh, this morning, if all goes well at all of our campuses, for the first time ever in the history of Lenexa Baptist Church, we'll have baptized 200 people in one year. We've never broke the 200 mark, and so we praise God for that. So grateful. God has been so, so incredibly good to us. Well, Revelation 9 this morning, uh, you remember all the way back in Revelation 4 when we saw Christ in Revelation 5, he took that book, that seven-sealed book, the beginning of the tribulation period, and the judgment of God begins to fall on a world that has rejected him, we saw those uh, six seals of judgment, and then with the seventh seal began uh, the trumpets of God's judgment. And remember, as I shared with you as we began all this, as you move further in the chronology with the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls. The, the, the activities begin to come and occur more swiftly. So uh, the, the seals are uh, almost an overview of the entire uh, seven-year tribulation period. You get into the trumpets, it's a shorter time frame, and then you get into the bowls. And I think once we get to the bowls in Revelation 16, I believe personally that those judgments uh, fall probably within the period of days or weeks at the most, maybe months. So I share with you before, the seals are one, two, three, Three, and then you get to the trumpets and it's one, two, three, and then you get to the bowls and it's one, two, three, four, five, six, and then what happens? Boom, Christ returns. So just to kind of give you an overview of where we're at as we come to chapter nine, verse thirteen, we're at the sixth trumpet, and we are very near, while we still have another trumpet to go, and while we still have seven bowls of judgment, we are very near. When you look at this chronologically, you're very near the return of Christ in Revelation 19. All right, so with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this chapter. Lord, we are so grateful this morning that we have the opportunity to to come before your word. We're reminded today that all scripture is God-breathed. It's not only God-breathed. It's useful for teaching and training, rebuking, training in righteousness so that the Man of God may be equipped for every good work. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would take this chapter and the truths that lie within it and you would illumine our hearts and our minds. And God, I pray in the spirit of James chapter one that we wouldn't simply be hearers of the word, but doers also, that we would apply this to our lives. And God, I pray for anybody that's here today or watching online, reach Church of Soda or the venue right down the hall that doesn't know you. They've never truly repented of their sins and turned towards Christ. God, move in their heart today. Show them the depth of their sin. I pray in your word you'd show them the beauty of Christ, and today they'd be reborn by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Bless your holy word this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me in verse 13. It says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and sounded that sixth trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So we see here with this sixth trumpet a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. This is the second time in Revelation we've mentioned this golden altar. You remember when you went into the temple area, the priest... Uh, would first pass by the altar of sacrifice. It's a good reminder that you do not enter into the presence of God apart from the shedding of blood. Somebody must die. Blood must be shed. Not just anybody, but the blood of an unblemished lamb. So every time they did that, they were reminded that you don't enter into the presence of God on the base of your own merit. Somebody's got to die. And so they'd go past the altar of sacrifice, then they'd go to the bronze laver, and they'd cleanse themselves. And then just before entering into the Holy of Holies would be the golden altar of incense. That altar on the four corners was four golden horns. And every day the priest would go there, he would change out the coals, he would uh, sprinkle the incense, and it would send up a sweet aroma before the Lord. It was always a picture of worship and prayer. It's interesting, the the, the first time that the altar of incense is mentioned in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 1. I've been studying that again in preparation for next week, but you'll remember in Luke 1, I talked about it a couple weeks ago, but Zacharias is selected by the casting of lots, and he has that opportunity to go in before the presence of God. And there he is before the altar of incense and he prays. He prostrates himself before God he prays. And he prays what? God, remember your promise. That you promised you would send somebody to make things right. And it's a powerful picture in the midst of a dark day in Israel's history. In Luke chapter 1, the nation of Israel is broken spiritually. They're broke economically. They're broke militaristically. They're broke spiritually. There's not, the word of God was rare in those days. But in the midst of that, you have a remnant, don't you? You have one old couple named Elizabeth and Zacharias, and they are faithful to God. And God in that moment, as Zacharias goes into that holy of holies, the angel of God appears to Zacharias and says that God has heard your prayers. Not just the prayers of the nation that God finally would send a savior, but he's answered the personal prayer of Zacharias and Elizabeth that they would have a son and he would be the forerunner. So a powerful picture, the first reference, the altar of incense in the New Testament is in conjunction with the coming of the Savior who would bring salvation. The last mentioning of the altar of incense in the New Testament is right here in Revelation 9. And it corresponds to a situation in which the saints of God, even as we saw in Revelation 8, are offering up prayers. And what is our prayer? Come, Lord Jesus. The first time, come Lord Jesus. He came to be the Lamb of God who would die for our sins. Revelation 8 and 9, come Lord Jesus. And he comes as the hawk bearing judgment. So, here, the the voice from the four horns, and look at verse 14. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the cry is, come Lord Jesus. The response, release the four angels who are bound. These are bound angels. They are prisoners. They are fallen angels. Four fallen angels bound at this specific location and released from their chains for the outpouring of God's judgment on the world. They have been bound here, as we talked about last week, from Genesis chapter 6. And they were bound here at this specific time and location for this specific event. That's why, as I read these things, I have such a hard time taking these things as symbolic. There's a lot of detail here. A lot of picture here of specificity as God brings about his judgment. And they're bound at the great river Euphrates, The Euphrates River is the eastern boundary of the promised land. It's also the eastern boundary of the Antichrist's rule. Um, It's kind of a double boundary. But uh, the nation of Israel, their enemies are often seen as people coming from the north and coming from the east. So here are these four fallen angels, and as we'll see, leading a demonic army from the east. And look at verse... 15, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Don't you love this? Prepared for this exact hour, day, month, and year. Pretty specific, isn't it? It's a reminder that every aspect of every day and every aspect of this tribulation period, is under the sovereign control of God, that these are not random acts. These are not coincidental incidents or wars that that break out randomly. No, all of these things are under the sovereign control of God. In fact, as we'll study in Revelation 11, the two witnesses during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the two witnesses will announce every judgment during the first three and a half years. Why do they do that? Why do they announce it? so that the world would not mistake these judgments as just weather patterns. It's not global warming. It's not some random act that those two witnesses are to declare the world that this is the judgment of God. It's similar to Moses in Exodus, uh, with the Exodus from Egypt, and the plagues that were brought, along, brought on Egypt. Moses announces every one of them. Why? So that Pharaoh would know when they came that this is not just some random uh, swarm of locusts, that this is not an eclipse. No, it was Moses declaring to Pharaoh, You're about to see something that's going to come upon you, and, and make no mistake, it's the judgment of God. So here we see God's sovereign uh, control over all these events. And while Satan, because we'll see this, this is the demonic realm unmasked, as we'll talk about in in a minute. But while Satan might be the immediate cause, God is sovereign over every activity, bringing it together in accordance with his perfect plan. That we know, even with Calvary, Certainly Satan was behind the scenes orchestrating those events. But what does Isaiah 53 tell us? The Lord was pleased to crush him. So while Satan may be the immediate cause, God is behind it all and sovereignly controlling it for his perfect plan and will. That God is able to even take the activities of Satan and use it for his purposes. I love what one commentator said. He says, history is in the hand of God and runs in the channels that he has dug for it. So while Satan might be working and these demons might be leading this army, we know that it is God who is in control. Just as it was at the cross in Calvary, the worst event in human history is Calvary. And yet at the same time, the best event in human history is Calvary. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And so these fallen angels lead a demonic army from the east to kill a third of mankind. Now with the fourth seal, you'll remember that we've already seen a quarter of the earth, of mankind, has been eliminated. And now if you add to that a third of mankind, I'm not a mathematician, but the commentators tell me you have now eliminated about a half of the world's population. So somewhere around four billion people have died. It's an unbelievable picture of death and destruction. And the question is, how do they kill this many people? Well, verse 16 tells us. Look at verse 16. How does this many people die? Well, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, there's a lot of controversy as to whether or not this is an entirely demonic army, much in the same way that we saw Uh, Satan's demons released, these fallen angels released at the beginning of chapter 9 and verses 1 through 12, or is this an earthly army? And there are many today that conjecture that this is an earthly army coming from the east, could be Russia, could be China, we don't really know for sure. Um, But I tend to lean towards this being a demonic army based on the language that's used and its similarity to the first 12 verses, but I think you could take either one. It's a massive army nonetheless, a 200 million person army. And John makes a point to let us know the exact number and not only know the number, but to tell you he heard the exact number. So you have this massive demonic army coming from the east against who? What is this battle? What is this war? Well, you remember we learned in Daniel that there will be a revival of Rome, a ten nation power from where? From the west a European ten-nation power, and now coming against that army in the west and that ten-nation power in the west will come a demonic army from the east and you are going to see bloodshed the likes of which and on a scale of which we could not even begin to fathom. This battle is a precursor to the final battle, the battle of Armageddon, when the armies of the world will again cross over the Euphrates and there will be one final battle battle on the plains of Megiddo when the armies of the world stand against Christ who will come and put them down very quickly and we will study them later but look at the description of this army and this battle in verses 17 through 19 and this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them the riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone And the heads of the horses like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for the tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm." You remember, as we looked at last week with the fifth trumpet at the beginning of chapter 9, the demons are released, but they are only allowed to torture. They're not allowed to take a person's life. Well, here with the sixth trumpet, this demonic army, you no longer find merely torture. These uh, will bring death. They are killers. Uh, They kill with their tails that are like serpents. And out of their mouths come fire and smoke. They kill a third of mankind. The devastation, the horror, and the death that accompanies this trumpet is absolutely overwhelming. The fact of the matter is we have nothing to compare this to. And I wanted to stop here for a brief moment because as we read Revelation and even as we get further, we begin to see more and more of Satan and the demonic realm. It's a good reminder that the book of Revelation is not just the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation unmasks Satan and evil. It shows us the evil nature of Satan and the demonic realm. We get a chance to see the evil that lies behind the events of human history as Paul said to the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 6 that a spiritual battle is occurring all around us, that we may not be able to see it with our eyes, but the battle is there, and it is real. And in Revelation, this spiritual battle that in many ways we're unable to see with our physical eyes today, in the midst of the tribulation period, this demonic realm is unmasked, and we see it in all of its ugliness and all of its evil. Remember, Scripture tells us of Satan, that he's the god of this world, the prince of the power of air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul said to the Corinthians that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. You know, Jesus, when he spoke of his arrest in John 14, 30, he said, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He didn't say Rome was coming. He didn't say Judas was coming. He said the ruler of this world is coming. He was letting the disciples know that behind Rome and behind the Jewish leadership and behind Jewish is Satan. And he's bringing about these events. And the most powerful picture of this has to be in Daniel chapter 10. You remember in Daniel chapter 10, uh, Daniel is praying and fasting The nation of Israel has been allowed to go back and to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. But the Gentile nations that surround Israel, they're not excited about Israel coming back and rebuilding. And so those guys, the remnant that goes back to rebuild, they face opposition. And the Gentile nations begin a letter-writing campaign to influence the king of Persia to stop the rebuilding. And they're effective. It works. And the building is stopped. And Daniel's heart is burdened for the nation and those that have gone back. He can't go back by the nature of his job and what God has placed him in. But he wants to identify with the people in the midst of their struggle. So what does he do? He fasts to identify with them in their struggle. And he prays. He prays that God would move so that the rebuilding could occur again. And you remember God responds. And you know what happens? I loved going back and reading it because I had forgot about this. But a person shows up, and it's a person that sounds pretty familiar, especially considering what we've studied in Revelation. Because Daniel says he sees somebody dressed in fine linen, and he has a golden sash around his waist. And it says his appearance was like lightning. And it says his eyes were like flames of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we studied that person in Revelation chapter 1. Who is Daniel seeing? He's seeing Christ. Isn't this beautiful? The Daniel gets a picture, gets a glimpse of the pre-incarnate Christ. And I wish we could stop right here because it's a powerful principle that when you find yourself in a place of despair and hopelessness and you're wondering about the faithfulness of God, look to Jesus. Some of you are here this morning, and I don't know what you're facing, but you're facing a situation that seems absolutely impossible, and you're wondering, will God be faithful? Look to Christ. Scripture tells us that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. What an encouragement to Daniel in the midst of that despair. He sees Christ, but that's just side, because the most important is he sees another person. You remember this? He sees another individual. An angel appears to him. And the angel tells Daniel that when you first started praying, we heard and we responded. And it's been 21 days. (laughs) And Daniel's thinking, what in the world took you so long? Are angels that slow? What's wrong? And you remember the angel tells him why. He says, I was confronted by a demon. A demon who was assigned to Persia. And that demon was influencing The kings of Persia against the nation of Israel. And there ensued a battle between that demon and that angel. And the conflict was so severe that Michael, the angel Michael, came to that angel's aid to support him so that they would subdue him. So this this demon over Persia was not able to accomplish all that he wanted to accomplish because of an angelic battle that was occurring there. And Daniel never saw that battle with his own eyes. But it was there and it was real. And that angel, you remember, encourages Daniel and commissions Daniel. And then what does he do? The angel tells Daniel, I got to go because I got to go get involved in the battle. Daniel chapter 10 is the Old Testament version of Ephesians chapter 6 to remind us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a reminder to us today that while we might not be able to see it with our own eyes, listen to me, there is a very real spiritual battle occurring around us right now. It's amazing to me when you talk, I don't know about you, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but occasionally it'll happen to me when you set your heart to get up and go early to get in God's word. Did it ever happen to you that you get a distraction or two that wants to hinder you from getting in God's Word? That ain't just coincidence. There's somebody who doesn't want you to get in God's Word. You ever set your heart to tell somebody about the good news of Jesus Christ? Talking to a guy on Friday. Had an old buddy of his. He planned to go share Christ with him. God's done an amazing work in his life. This man was terminally ill, said it in his heart. He's going to go share the gospel with him. He arrives on the scene, and guess what? Two of his old partying buddies shows up and drive in at the same moment. Do you not think there's not a demonic force behind all of that trying to hinder that man from sharing the gospel with an individual who desperately needs to know Christ. Listen, there is a spiritual battle going on around us. Now, when we get to revelation, when we get to the tribulation, it is visible, it's unmasked. But make no mistake, it's no less real today. It's a battle that started long before creation when Satan rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him and he attacked the man and the woman in the garden. And then what does scripture say? The whole world lies in the grip of the evil one. And there's only one person who can defeat Satan and the demonic. And who is it? It's the seed of the woman who will crush his head. It is Jesus Christ. And Satan hates the people of God. You see it through all all scripture. He attacks the people of God. He seeks to deceive you. He seeks to discourage you. He seeks to divide us. And ultimately, what does he want? He wants death and destruction. He wants to take you out. And do you know what the Bible calls us? Sheep. How about that? The dumbest animal on the face of the earth. Be encouraged today. Aren't you glad you came to church? You're a sheep. Sheep are incredibly defenseless creatures. They cannot run very fast. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have stink glands like a skunk. They don't have quills like a porcupine. They don't have camouflage. They are only good for lamb chops and mutton. That's all they're good for. And yet a sheep can also become the most powerful creature on the face of the earth when that sheep does what? When it stays close to the shepherd. Because the shepherd is able to fight back the bear and the lion. Listen, this morning, we're in a spiritual battle. And it's not us versus Satan. Because if it's us versus Satan, it's over like that. Because one angel in the Old Testament kills 185,000 people. Listen, you are not as strong as you think you are. But the knowledge of our own frailty and weakness, what does it cause us to do? Cling to Jesus. Jesus. You better run to that good shepherd this week before you go out and start a day. You better get in God's word. You better armor up because you have an enemy who's going to try to take you out. And you have no idea what's going to occur tomorrow. But I can tell you this, whatever you encounter, you will not be able to encounter it on your own. That's why we stay in God's word. That's why we abide in prayer, to be filled up with the spirit so that we can engage the enemy, not in our own power, but in the power of the spirit with Christ with us. Oh, we've got a spiritual battle occurring. And I felt it was so important because all of a sudden as you read Revelation and you study, it just seems like the demonic realm just suddenly pops up out of nowhere. No, 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 listen. They've always been there. It's just when we get to the tribulation, you can see them real clearly, but they're just as real today. And our only hope Listen, I don't care where you stand on your eschatological, eschatological views of Revelation, how you, whatever you take, but I think we better all agree on this. Our only hope, whether it's today or the tribulation, is we better stay close to Jesus. So we see this incredible demonic army come against the ten nation power in the West and death and destruction on a scale we've never seen. Well, back to Revelation 9. Look with me at the very end, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk and they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. This to me is amazing. The rest of mankind, those who have not already died, those who are not marked by the seal of God, They won't repent. That's unimaginable to me. I mean, think about all they have witnessed. Think about all they have seen. They have seen the seven seals. They they have seen the six trumpets and the corresponding plagues. They've seen the demonic realm unleashed on earth. They've seen the ugliness of Satan. Certainly, at some point, they've heard the preaching of the 144,000. And yet, what does it tell us here? They will not repent. They would rather worship Satan than turn to Christ. They continue in their idolatry, meaning they will not submit to the rule of God. They continue in murder. They have no respect for the dignity of life. They continue, as it says here, in sorceries. It's it's actually the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get drugs, drug use rampant. They continue in immorality. It's the Greek word pornea from which we get pornography. Sexual perversion of every variety is rampant, and they continue in theft. No respect for personal rights or personal property. You know what you have here? You have the complete breakdown of society. No recognition of God or a higher authority or accountability. They're going to live however they want to live. No respect for life. The sanctity of human life is gone. Murder is rampant. Drug use is rampant. Sexual perversion is rampant of every kind. And what I have is mine. What you have is mine. And if you won't give it to me, I'll just take it. Does that sound familiar today? Do we see a little bit of this? Folks, just listen to me. What little we taste of it today pales in comparison to what it will be like then. But this is always what society becomes when you remove God and his people. Any culture, any culture that untethers itself from God, this is what you get. And in the midst of the tribulation period, the church known as the restrainer is removed. Listen, you and I, we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are the salt that preserves the holiness of God that preserves our communities. We're the light of the world that pushes back the darkness. Did you know this today? Simply by your presence in any given environment, if you take a Christian and you light them up with the gospel and they're living according to Christ, you place them in any environment, they become an unstoppable force against Satan and his darkness. Listen, Satan cannot have his full desire in any environment where there's a Christian. And light always pushes back darkness. Darkness does never overwhelms light. I don't know where you're at today. You might be in a very dark place. Just remember this. What would it be like if you weren't there? You push back the darkness. You become the salt and light of Christ. But in the midst of the tribulation period, what happens? The church is removed. The restrainer is removed. And now Satan is allowed to move amongst the world unhindered. And there's a breakdown in society, the likes of which we've not seen. And the people that are there, those who have not turned to Christ, and those who have not been killed, they won't repent. You know, one of the most important words in all of Scripture is the word repentance. It's not fun. (laughs) It's not fun to preach on either. a whole lot more fun to preach on grace and mercy and love but listen you you have not heard all that god wants to say until you've heard his command to repent and repentance it's not regret we've all regretted certain things that we've done Regretted words that have come out of our mouth, regretted actions that we participated in. But repentance is not regret. It's not just feeling bad about what you did. It's not embarrassment. We occasionally get embarrassed and we're worried about our reputation. But worrying about your reputation is not about not the same as true biblical repentance. And it's not even an apology. Uh, You heard those half-hearted apologies? I'm sorry if I offended you. What is the person saying? You just stop being so sensitive. I didn't do anything wrong. You get over yourself. Sometimes repentance involves an apology, but it's not simply an apology. Repentance, as I was thinking about it this week, repentance, humanly speaking, is not only hard, but it's what I would say pert near impossible. Um, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Meta change, noia mind. Change your mind. I was thinking about this this week. We get into a lot of debates with people and debate about sports. Anybody here passionate about sports? Um, we got a, two boys and myself that are pretty passionate about sports in our homes, and we get in arguments and debates all the time. I was thinking about this with my son this week in the midst of one of our debates. Um, I never, I do not remember in the history of me and my son debating sports and athletics, I never remember a time where either one of us stopped and said, You make a great point, I'm changing my mind. It's never occurred. Normally, it doesn't end in a good place. We're both mad at each other, and he's wrong, and I'm right, because that's the way it goes, you know. But (laughs) do you know how hard it is to change somebody's mind? Think about it on a political level. I mean, we see a lot of political debates. I've seen a lot of political arguments. And I know that this may occur out there, but I just, I try to rack my brain this week thinking about it. I never remember, I cannot remember for the life of me, one political debate that I witnessed or one argument, political argument that I witnessed where either one of the individuals said, wow, you make a great point. I've never thought of it that way. I'm changing my mind today. And again, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but do we, do we understand how difficult this is to change your mind? And when it comes to biblical repentance, you're not just changing your mind about a sports figure Or a team, or a politician, or a party, you're changing your mind about you. You are changing your mind that you come to the realization you're not good, regardless of what mama's been telling you. You're not a good person. You are a sinner. You are broke spiritually. You are broke, and you have no hope within yourself. You're a sinner, and you have sinned against a holy God. You didn't just sin against people. David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You've sinned against God. And get this. You're accountable. You're responsible. You can't blame anybody else. Can't blame your parents. Can't blame your environment. Can't blame your culture. You are responsible. You're guilty, you're broken, you're a sinner, you're accountable, and you've sinned against the Holy God. That's a pretty big mind change, isn't it? Not only is repentance changing your mind, it's changing direction. So here it gets even more difficult. Not only do you change your mind about who you are, you change your mind about the path you're on. You begin to realize this path is not the right path. I've been going down the wrong road. And all the things that I thought were doing that would somehow get me to God, it's all fool's gold. It was all worthless. It's all filthy rags. It's hard to come to a place where you say, all my religious experiences and all my going to church and all my good works, it doesn't get me where I want to go. You change your mind about who you are, you change your path that you're on, and you turn towards Christ. The good news is, while that might be impossible with man, all things become possible through Christ. And I just so happen to believe that there could be somebody that's in this room this morning or watching online or Reach Church of Soto down the hall in the venue, and you know in your heart you've never truly repented of your sin and turned towards Christ. You may have felt bad about your sin from time to time, or maybe you were embarrassed by your sin but you've never truly repented. You've never truly admitted that you're broke spiritually to the extent that you change the path you're on and you turn towards Christ. And this is the beauty of this. When God begins to change your mind, he works in you, and through the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word, he rebirths you from the inside so that the life change becomes a product of your new nature in Christ Jesus. This is what I love about doing discipleship with new, new believers. When you meet with a new believer and you do discipleship, and they start to tell you, inevitably, here's, there's, there's always this conversation. They will tell you, I was reading in the Bible yesterday morning. And I will always stop them because it's important that you don't miss this moment. Where you ask them, at any time prior to faith in Christ, did you say, boy, i got to get up early tomorrow and read that Bible? And inevitably, they will always tell you, no, I've never had that compulsion. I've never had that desire. But all of a sudden, through faith in Christ and becoming a new creation, they have new desires. And they desire to be in God's word. And they desire to go to church and be with God's people. And guess what they also desire to do? You'll find it common among new believers. They want to tell other people about the salvation that they've received through faith in Jesus Christ. That God brings about a new work in their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. This is what God does. We turn towards Him, and He changes our mind. He changes our path. We begin to live differently and act differently. If it really gets in our life, it changes the way we drive. It affects our right foot and we drive better. Yeah. Remember that as you leave today, out of the parking lot. But God brings about a great work in our hearts. And some of you, you've never truly repented. And Christ is working in your heart today. You know, I, I really believe as I meet with people, they, they somehow think it's a deception of Satan, it's a lie of Satan that if I turn to Christ, I'm going to have to give up all the fun things I like. They start to think, boy, that's going to be a boring life. Listen, that is a lie of Satan. What you gain in Jesus Christ, the joy you find in him, will far surpass anything you give up. Those little momentary times of joy will seem like nothing in comparison to the joy you find in Jesus Christ. You know what I challenge you to do today? Pull up a chair at the table of God and taste and see if he's not really good. I love when you, get, when you get somebody starting to do devotional time in God's word where they get along with God's word. I had, this, I had somebody tell me this a couple weeks ago. He was getting in God's word in the morning, and he said, I, I, I was going to give God 30 minutes. I got 30 minutes. I got, I got a busy day. He said before he knew it, he looked down at his watch, and he'd gone about 47 minutes. And he said, I think I could have stayed there for another hour. Man, that's the goodness of God's word. You get a taste And God will grow in you an insatiable desire to rush after him and a hunger for his righteousness. Turn to Christ today. Do we have a hymn? Oh, we've always got a hymn. These words may be familiar to you. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. For Jesus shed his precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. He offers now the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you into rest. Believe in him without delay and you are truly blessed. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather before your word this day. And Lord, I pray, in fact, I plead, on behalf of those who do not know you who have never truly repented, we know that this is your work that you do in their hearts. I pray, God, you would work in their heart today to change their mind about themselves, to change the direction of their life so that they would turn towards you in faith and repentance and know your salvation today. God, I pray that your love And the joy that you bestow would overwhelm any sense of regret or sacrifice that they might have to make in following you. Your word says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Not the fear of judgment, but the overwhelming nature of your love demonstrated on the cross that causes us to run to you for freedom and forgiveness. A new life and new direction. Lord, I pray for those of us that do know you. God, I pray as we know repentance doesn't end at the moment of salvation. I pray that those who may be here today, that maybe there's some sin that they need to repent of. Lord, today would be a day of repentance for them. They would change their mind about that sin. They'd change their mind about that path and you would draw them back to yourself. And Lord, I pray as we look at these events in Revelation and we see what is yet to come, I pray that it would embolden us and encourage us to live holy lives. And when the opportunity arrives, we will speak the name of Jesus with boldness so that men and women might know his salvation and not his judgment. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond this morning in whatever way God's working on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation. We'd love to talk with you. Maybe you wanna just pray with a pastor. Maybe you would like to unite with our church family. Maybe you've been through our membership class and you say this morning, I wanna make my decision public to become a member of Lanexa Baptist. We'd love to receive you. This is your time. Know this morning, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.